0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The translation of a drug from research to development faces a number of obstacles, but these can be amplified for rare disease therapies in part because of the smaller populations, heterogeneous nature, and often poorly understood development of a disease. The Catalyst Program at the Clinical and Translational Science Institute at the University of California, San Francisco, will be holding a one-day symposium on March 3rd with leading researchers, drug developers, and patient advocates about the translational challenges rare disease therapies face and how to address them. We spoke to Kathy Trelau-Stewart, Interim Director of UCSF's Catalyst program, about the upcoming symposium, the unique translational challenges rare disease therapies face, and what can be done to overcome them. We've included a link to the symposium agenda and registration in the description of this week's podcast if you want to learn more. Kathy, thanks for joining us. Hello, there. We're going to talk about the Catalyst program at UCSF, the particular challenges of translating rare disease therapies from discovery to the market, and an upcoming symposium that will address this topic. Let's begin with the Catalyst program itself. For listeners who are not familiar with it, can you explain what it is and and what problems it's trying to address?
1: The Catalyst program at, at UCSF, um, is intended to, um, to support what is known as the, the value of death that's that sort of part of the um, progression of uh innovation which you know moves things from research labs into um into reality and hopefully into product and patients um, there's a real need in in this space to combine the skill set uh, academic research and the of industry um, in moving products across this divide, uh, and the products that we look after are um, from therapeutic diagnostic, devices, and short health applications, uh, all in the science area. And uh, hopefully, um, we can help you know academics move them forward. And um, we actually are pretty. And, uh, you know, we we have a very good return on investment for the investment that we make in in projects. And um, we have, um, obviously, quite a lot of startups and investments happen post um, our
0: work. Much has been made about the so-called valley of death, the funding gap in moving discovery from the lab to clinical development. In recent years, there's been a big push among pharmaceutical and biotech companies to form early-stage discovery and development partnerships with academic institutions. Has this changed the landscape at all in any significant way?
1: Absolutely. Um, when I'm My background is, is in pharma, um, and for the last um, seven years, I've been in this space. Um, basically trying to, you know, find really good academic um, projects and move them forward. Um, and I have to say in that time the ecosystem here has changed dramatically from one where farmers are very happy to do this all on their own and didn't used to get their discoveries from the pages of nature uh, and then work on them internally to a position where they have reduced their internal investment and their internal R&D capabilities at the early stage. And therefore, they need to actually work with academia. Um, And so the whole ecosystem has changed dramatically. And now, pharmaceutical companies have to, and uh, in fact, can to work on good projects from academia.
0: Well, well, there are common challenges in, in discovery and development of drugs, rare disease drugs face some challenges that I'd argue are, are unique. I, I thought we could walk through some of those and see how they shape drug development for these diseases and, and if there are particular strategies that have been effective in, in addressing them. These diseases are ones with small populations. How does that create a challenge from a, a drug development point of view? Um. Well, I
1: think it's creates various challenges. I mean, the most obvious one is that how do you do research um, when there's very few patients available, um, very few experts in in any particular field? um, And, of course, how do you then um, move that research into the clinical environment? How do you get positive, um, you know, statistically significant changes in, in a disease? cy or, or symptoms um, when you've only got very few patients that you can get a hold of so doing the clinical phase of drug discovery is extremely challenging when you really can't get really big cohorts to ensure that you can look at different doses and put at multiple dose regimes um, it makes the clinical phase extremely challenging to show really good
0: effect well related to those small populations the fact that often much is not known about these diseases how they progress, how heterogeneous they might be, how do drug developers create meaningful clinical endpoints in designing trials for these types of drugs
1: yeah, I mean it, this is one of the major challenges, I mean one of the, the you know the basis of clinical trials is that you try and uh, reduce the variation so you use Large amounts of inclusion criteria to get a really, you know, defined population. Um, in these diseases, you can't really do that because there just aren't enough patients. Um, and then there is also a huge variation in the um, the natural history of these, these diseases, and a poor understanding of the natural history of. Um, so it can be really challenging, um, you know. Even if it's a direct genetic link, there can be multiple mutations on that gen- genetic link, all of them giving different uh, natural history. So I think you know the way that these are done is that is that studies are tend to be very much broader, looking at endpoints such as in Duchenne, you know, walking distance, uh, and more phenotypes
0: you mentioned natural histories. There seems to be growing sophistication among uh, patient advocacy groups, among among drug developers about the importance of, of natural histories. Who should be responsible for natural histories, and, and, and how challenging are they to develop? Yeah, this is,
1: this is an interesting one, because and who's responsible for, for anything in, in, in the health arena? I think you know, for most diseases that um, that we've been working on for many years, um, people have seen large groups of of patients, and there is enough data to know what the natural history really looks like. But as I say, even in them, in diseases such as asthma, um, it's not clear what uh, all of the subtypes, and therefore what all of the the natural histories of the the subtypes are. Um, So I think. Um, we just need to, um, to think about differently, I think. Um, I think, you know, the natural history of a disease is really important because otherwise you might not choose an endpoint point uh, which is very relevant and which is going to make uh, a big difference to the patient.
0: Give it, yeah. Given the lack of understanding that often goes with a lot of these diseases, how does that shape the conversation that drug developers have with regulators?
1: I think it, it absolutely shapes the conversation, and I have to say, you know, we've moved um, quite a long way with regards to, to the regulatory environment uh, for these, these types of issues. The Regulators um, get involved in the discussions about how you can get meaningful results on small groups of patients. Um, from the point of view of the pharmaceutical companies, um, they, uh, the regulators, actively, you know, try to support doing this type of work um, because, you know, we know it can make a, a difference to a small population of patients, but a big difference. Um, so, regulators, I think, are, are very much involved in a discussion about how we can do these things and how we can encourage companies to move forward.
0: When we talk about rare diseases, by and large, uh, we're talking about genetically driven diseases. Do you believe rapid advances in sequencing and, and data analysis will fundamentally change rare disease drug development?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, the sequencing, um, the ability to sequence rapidly and the availability and declining of cost of being able to sequence certainly helps. Um, so, I mean, if, if you can imagine that, that um, you know, a child is born, uh, there's maybe obviously something wrong, or maybe not obviously something wrong, but something that develops as they grow older. Um, then, you know, at what point do you work out, what, what you know, there's something wrong with this? And how do you work out, you know, that there's something here? And I think the, the advent of available sequencing means that, you know, you can get patients um, sequenced fairly quickly um, and cheaply, and this is where you get real identification of a genetic link to a disease. Um, it's very difficult to do it by entirely sequencing because there's so many underlying uh, issues and So I think the availability of sequencing absolutely makes this easier. I don't, I don't know that it. Um, but it makes a big difference to the drug discovery process, other than clearly defining that population
0: of patients, which is very important. Uh, one of the one of the challenges drug developers face is the decision to advance an experimental therapy into the clinic. The failure rates of, of drugs would suggest drug developers can still do a better job of this. What can drug makers do in that decision making process to improve their chance for success.
1: Yeah, well, if you look at all diseases, not just um, rare diseases, or even directly genetically linked diseases, um, the evidence is now, I think, pretty strong that that the attrition that you see in all drug discovery, which is painfully bad, I'm afraid, and therefore very expensive, um, is not as bad in... In uh, genetic linked diseases, um, so it's quite clear that if you can subset a patient, set a patient, you can do a of trial better. If you um, you're using a genetically linked disease to actually understand the mechanism of that disease, you can choose the way to target that disease more more specifically and more directly. So when you know that you're doing you're, you're targeting the right pathway and that you are also then defining the right the patient and you're asking questions about that specific partic- particular genetic linkage and that pathway. So actually it, it's clear that you would you would expect a much better um, uh, expectation from preclinical to clinical um, physics and you would then therefore expect a higher success rate in a clinical trial for that subset and defined disease. And you would, how we've always done it, which is take the large population and you've got something in that pathway and you apply that to that large population. And strangely enough, it often doesn't work. So you get higher attrition in that environment. And I think we're starting to show that we get lower attrition from preclinical to clinical in um, regular uh, situations with, with a clear
0: genetic risk. One thing we haven't discussed is the patient role in all of this, which is changing rather dynamically. How important a role are patients and patient groups playing in terms of both funding early-stage translational research and, and helping determine meaningful clinical endpoints?
1: I think they're playing a very major role. Um, it's good to see this. I think it's very important, uh, taking into account the patient viewpoint, but it's even more you know, patient and patient advocates, which are often parents in the rare disease, so is really important. Um, the other the other role that they play is that they often end up raising funds for the early research because there's often still a, a, a an issue over In the natural history because they are doing a lot of these natural history studies. Um, you're finding the patients in that how does a, a pharmacist company that's got an approach actually find the patient? Um, and the patient registries that some of these foundations and the parents uh, and patients that are creating are hugely valuable in, in, in enabling the research, um, both at preclinical and clinical.
0: Uh, how are drug makers and, and academics differently about patient groups when it comes to partnering today?
1: Oh, I think that has, that has changed dramatically too. I mean, I think particularly in the rare disease space, and I think the rare disease space will lead other areas of research as well, um, patients are now getting actively involved in it. Um, and uh, in the rare disease space, they're seen as an essential part of the um, research environment, which enables this to work. Um, so I think we all are breaking down that divide that is, you know, we're the researchers and the doctors, and when we've created something, we'll give it to the patient. That wall is just breaking down, and it's most obviously broken down in the rare disease. World.
0: Catalyst is running a, a full day rare disease symposium March 3rd. W- what are the goals of it?
1: Okay. Well, our major goal here is, is to basically is to um, inform people about the challenges of doing research in this space. With um, obviously an intention of um, increasing understanding um, from all of the groups into all of the different aspects. So, the patient, uh, the patient advocates, the researchers, the preclinical researchers, as well as the clinical researchers. And then the farmer then the view of it, which is, which is different again. I and mean, it has to be said that drug discovery is a hugely expensive endeavour. Um, and um, the attrition issues make it even more expensive. Um, and we need to understand how um, we can encourage this sort of uh, research in a farmer environment. The farmer has to be part of this really. Um, And I think it's about increasing the understanding of of the challenges in this case. Um, There's a lot of bad press about the cost of some of these drugs. Um, And I think, yes, they're high cost, And yes, we we prefer if they weren't. Um, but doing uh, drug discovery is challenging, and doing it in this space has different challenges again. So we need to increase the understanding
0: of it, and that's the aim of this research. Kathy Trelaw stewart Interim Director of the Catalyst Program at UCSF's Clinical and Translational Science Institute. Kathy, thanks so much for your time today.
1: No problem. Thank you very much.
0: The Negotiating the Challenges of Therapeutics Discovery for Rare Disease Symposium will be held March 3rd at Genentech Hall at the Mission Bay campus of UCSF. To learn more or get tickets, use the URL at the end of the description of this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.